Toward the end of the 8th century BC, the Assyrians conquered the northern tribes of Israel and overthrew Samaria, which was the capital city. Listen now to the words of 2 Kings, chapter 17 and verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So there were, at that time, two separate kingdoms, the southern two tribes and the northern ten tribes. And the Syrians attacked the northern kingdom. So the southern kingdom remained intact, but the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians resettled Babylonians, Kuthites, Avites, Hamathites, and Sepharvaimites <laughs> in the land of Assyria. The end result of this, or pardon me, not in, not in, not in the land of Assyria, in the land of Samaria, in the land where the northern tribes had occupied So all of these foreigners came to live among the Israelites who had lived in those regions. So in the southern two tribes, there was only Jews. But in the section north of Judea, which became known as Samaria, there was Jews and Gentiles living together. And the end result of this resettlement of Israelites and foreigners together in Samaria was that the new mixed population adopted a syncretistic religion, mixing the worship of Yahweh with the worship of the gods of the nations. And so for generations, this was about the 8th century BC, 720-ish was uh, when Samaria fell. For the next several generations and even centuries afterward. The Jews from the southern tribes viewed the Samaritans to the north as impure. Mixed both in ethnicity and in religion. So they were not purely Jewish in ethnicity or religion. Therefore, the view of the, those who lived in Judea in the south was that the people of the north, the Samaritans, were not the pure people of God as the Jews in the south were. They were not God's covenant people because remember God had entered into covenant with the children of Israel. Not the children of the uh, Gentile nations, right? Not, um, why is he slipping my mind? Not Isaac, but, or Isaac, but not Ishmael and not Jacob, but Esau, but Esau. Not the children of Esau, but the children of Jacob. We're the people of God. But here are the children now of Ishmaelites, of Edomites, of all these Gentile nations, as it were, living together with the covenant people of God in Samaria. And here is the worship not only of Yahweh, but the worship of all these false gods, which, as we know, is not a net gain. One God plus more gods doesn't equal a better situation. But this is this is actually subtraction by addition. You add gods to the worship of Yahweh and you're actually left without proper worship. And those who lived in Judea in the south rightly rejected the syncretistic religion of the Samaritans and viewed the Samaritans in those northern regions above Judea as being impure. 
The river Jordan ran on the east side of Samaria. And so what if Jews from Judea wanted to go to Galilee, which was even further north than Samaria, what some of them would do, apparently some of the Pharisees and some of those who were stricter, was they would come from Judea northward, cross the river Jordan, travel up the east bank of the river Jordan so that they didn't even have to pass through Samaria, and then cross back over the river Jordan into Galilee. So that they didn't even have to go through this middle land, which they viewed as impure. Such was the relationship between Samaritans and Jews at the time of Jesus. And so this is important context for understanding Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman at a Samaritan well outside a Samaritan city. Jesus, traveling northward from the southern region of Judea on his way to Galilee further north, doesn't bother with this nonsense of crossing over to the east side of the river Jordan. He just goes straight up through Samaria. He passes through the middle region of Samaria between Judea and Galilee, and around noon, the sixth hour of the day, as verse 6 tells us, and they started their day at 6 a.m., but they reckoned the start of their day to be 6 a.m., And so the sixth hour is noon. Around noon, Jesus comes to a well. And he is, of course, what? Tired and thirsty. So he sits down beside a well and asks a Samaritan woman for a drink. So here's a Jewish man by a well at noon with a Samaritan woman. And the Jewish man says to the Samaritan woman, give me a drink. She asks a predictable question given the hostility between Jews and Samaritans. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? There's an explanatory note immediately following her question, which basically summarizes what I just told you. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The thrust of her question is then, why are you having dealings with me. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus' answer is recorded in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If I might paraphrase that a little bit and give the sense of it Jesus is almost saying something like this the question ma'am is actually not why am I having dealings with you but why are you not having dealings with me he hints at a gift from God and the importance of his person but says nothing explicit about either as yet However, he cryptically says that he has living water. So here she is, having come out of the city to the well to draw some water. And a Jewish man, strangely, starts talking to her. And not only is it strange that he's talking to her in the first place, but what he says is strange. Imagine yourself in the supermarket, in the water aisle, 
Maybe you're going to buy a case of water for an event that's coming up or having some people over for something outdoors. You want to have some water bottles or something like that. Or you're buying a big jug because it's hurricane season. You want to have some fresh water on hand. Whatever. You're in the water aisle. And all of a sudden, someone comes up uncomfortably close to you and says that they are an important person who can give you living water. It's not a perfect analogy. But I think we can all appreciate that this isn't a standard trip to the well for this woman. All she's trying to do is just come out of the city and get some water. And here's this Jewish man who asks her for a drink. And when she says, why are you talking to me? He's basically like, why aren't you talking to me? Because if you knew who it was who was talking to you, if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked me for a drink. And I would have given you living water. Surely we can all appreciate that this is somewhat of an unusual encounter. This is not exchanging normal, customary pleasantries. And so the woman's answer is dismissive. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. It's clear that her questions are rhetorical and that her, the implied answer from her perspective is no. This man is not greater than the father Jacob. He can't give her any water, seeing as he has nothing to draw with and the well is deep. He can't give her any water, let alone living water, better water, than this well has been providing, which has proved itself to be a good well ever since the ancient times when Jacob himself dug it. So her answer is basically dismissive. Again, it's like if you were, if you were walking in town and someone sticks their head out from a little alleyway and says, come over here, I have some good water to give you. And you say, okay, no, I'm not interested in your water. It's a dismissive answer, Right? But Jesus isn't dissuaded from his pursuit of this woman's heart. He states plainly what he can offer her. And this statement, this next statement that he utters is the focal point of my message this morning. Because this is what he offers all of us. Look at verses 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is obviously using metaphorical language. At this point, it's clear, I think even to the woman, that he's not talking about H2O. Jesus is not about to draw H2O from this well or any other well. He's not about to ask her to accompany him several hundred meters to the south or to the east where he's going to find better water, better H2O. Jesus is using metaphorical language then. But Jesus really is offering to this woman something that parallels water. Something of which water is a suitable metaphor. Something of which water 
Something about which water is instructive. Something that satisfies as water quenches thirst. Something that gives eternal life as water gives temporal life. And the key to understanding this metaphor is the phrase, a spring of water. In verse 14. A spring of water. Jesus is not only going to give her one thing as a one-time gift. Jesus is going to give her something which itself is going to continuously give her more. Jesus is not going to give her something limited, like a cup of water or a bucket of water that he might draw out of a well. But Jesus is going to give her something unlimited, as for all intents and purposes, a spring is unlimited. Not something inanimate, like H2O, but something living. Living water, he says. And that living water is not a what, but a who. Listen to the words of Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. In that passage, God himself is the spring. The fountain of water. Later in John's gospel, the Holy Spirit is again called a river of living water. That's John chapter 7 and verse 38. Jesus is drawing on this imagery. And Jesus is offering God to this woman. To be in her. The water that I give him will become in him. A spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 14. God, who is the fountain of living waters. The Holy Spirit, who is a river of living water. God would come to be a spring in her. As opposed to God being distant and full of wrath towards her. She may be reconciled to God in such a way that there is no longer any space, any distance between her and God. She can be reconciled to Him. In such a way that he is no longer distant from her. No longer wrathful towards her. But pouring out life and satisfaction in her soul. God would come and dwell in this woman. If she would only have dealings with this Jew. If you had known the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to you, you would have asked and He would have given you a spring of living water welling up in you 
to eternal life, satisfying you in such a way that you will never be thirsty again. Look again at verse 10. The thrust of Jesus' question, or pardon me, the thrust of Jesus' statement is to the woman. The question is not, why am I having dealings with you? The question is, why are you not having dealings with me? If you only knew what I could give you, never mind the Jew and Samaritan thing, you would be asking me for a drink. If you knew that I could revolutionize your relationship with God, such that He would be in you, as a river or a fountain or a spring of living water leading to the perpetual quenching of your thirst and ultimately to eternal life. You wouldn't avoid me like a Samaritan would normally avoid a Jew. Instead, you would do everything possible to have dealings with me. This woman who has had five husbands and is on her sixth man, though not married to him, may find in God what she hasn't yet and could never find in a man. True satisfaction. And she may find in God through this man at the well who she's talking to now. Forgiveness for her sins leading to eternal life. It's of great relevance to us at this point To note that Jesus is making a general statement about what he's capable of. He's addressing the woman at the well here in Samaria in this passage. But he's making general claims about what he is able to do. He is able to give people living water. To be in them. To satisfy them. To lead them to eternal life. That is what Jesus is able to do. He tells us here in this passage. He can do this. Then not only for the woman of Samaria. But he can do this for you. He can do this for me. Jesus can revolutionize anyone's relationship to God. Such that God Himself would come to indwell a man or a woman. Leading to the perpetual quenching of their thirst. And ultimately eternal life. If any of you then... knew the gift of God and who Jesus is you would be eager to have dealings with him have you had dealings with Jesus has God come to dwell in you as a fountain a river a spring of water Has your thirst been quenched? Have you been granted the eternal life that comes from drinking the living water that Jesus gives? Or 
are you hewing out for yourself broken cisterns that can't hold water? Are you pursuing life and satisfaction along paths that can only lead to death and disappointment? Romantic relationships like this woman? Even the best, godliest marriage can't satisfy like God Himself can. Much less promiscuous or ungodly relationships. Career, finances, self-actualization of some sort, just making your dreams come true, whatever they may be. Purpose, meaning, recreation. What are you looking at to quench your thirst and to lead you to real life? Alexander McLaren gives us the sense of this metaphor of broken cisterns. He notes that it is as if God is saying that the conduct of men, when they leave God and look for other delights, is like digging a canal alongside a navigable river. They condemn themselves to a laborious and quite superfluous task. A river running, navigable, ships can even pass on it. It's not a little trickling brook. A huge river. And yet you take it upon yourself to dig a trench parallel to this river in order that you might have some water. A laborious and quite superfluous task. Matthew Henry comments further on the superiority of God. The river, the fountain or the spring over a canal or a cistern of our own making. If we make an idol of any creature wealth or pleasure or honor. If we place our happiness in it and promise ourselves the comfort and satisfaction in it, which are to be had in God only. If we make it our joy and love, our hope and confidence, we shall find it a cistern, which we take great pains to hew out and fill. And at best, it will hold but a little water. And that dead and flat and soon corrupting and becoming nauseating. In other words, just like you don't want to drink from a stagnant pond, eventually these cisterns that you dig for yourselves become stagnant, even if they hold a little water for a time. Matthew Henry concludes his quote by saying, Let us therefore with purpose of heart cleave to the Lord only. In other words, nothing can satisfy like God can. Have you had dealings with Jesus? Has God come to indwell you as a fountain, a river, a spring, which keeps on giving such that your thirst is quenched? Have you been granted the eternal life that comes from drinking the living water 
that Jesus gives? Or are you hewing out cisterns for yourself? Broken cisterns that can't hold water. Maybe you're at the point this Samaritan woman was at at this juncture in the conversation. Not sure exactly who Jesus is. Somewhat dismissive, but somewhat intrigued. Listen again to what is at stake in this conversation. Jesus lays out in verses 13 and 14 what he is able to do for the woman in this narrative. And those same verses lay out exactly what Jesus is able to do for each and every one of us here this morning. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus goes on in this passage to demonstrate his credibility. He proves to the woman that he's worth listening to, worth trusting in, worth having dealings with, worth asking for a drink. And we'll come to that more next week, Lord willing. But understand what is at stake as Jesus deals with this woman at the well. He can bring God home to her. Causing her thirst to be quenched. And leading her to eternal life. That's the offer to her. And the same offer is presented to each and every one of you here this morning. God... Jesus can bring God home to you, to be in you as a spring of water, satisfying you such that you will never be thirsty again. A spring of water which wells up in you to eternal life. Here's how it works. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God in the place of disobedient sinners. He died the death of a disobedient sinner, though he was innocent. Thus, in his life and his death, he acted as a substitute. By trusting that Jesus lived for you and died for you. As your substitute, offering to God the obedience that you should have. Bearing in himself the penalty that you deserved. You may be reconciled to God. And not just reconciled to Him. But He will come and make His home in you. In this way, Jesus gives you God Himself. A fountain, a river, a spring of water. And the spring of water is in you. Look at verse 14. And by this means... By means of this new relationship to God through Christ, you receive eternal life and quenched thirst in the meantime. This is the gospel. Again, have you had dealings with Jesus? Has God come to indwell you as a fountain, a river, spring of water? Has your thirst been quenched?
Have you been granted the eternal life that comes from drinking the living water that Jesus gives? Those of us who have can certainly say that we're glad to have drunk the water that Jesus has provided. We're glad to have God dwelling within us. We're glad to have eternal life. We're satisfied. Am I right? Not like we should be. Not satisfied like we should be because we're forgetful. We often need to remember Christ and all His benefits. We often need to reset our minds on the things that are above. That's one reason why we come here and do what we do Sunday by Sunday. It's not just communion, you know, that we do in remembrance of Him. It's preaching that we do in remembrance of Him. Reading the scripture that we do in remembrance of Him. Prayer and singing that we do in remembrance of Him. Not because, as I've said before, we're we're actually going to be stumped when someone asks us, Who is Jesus? Man, I can't remember. You know, it's gone clean out of my mind. Not because we're going to forget in that sense. But because as we sing so often, we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Our hearts are prone to forget. And so we need to reset our minds on things that are above. We need to remember Christ and all His benefits. But listen, so often as we do remember Christ and all His benefits, so often as we do reset our minds on heavenly things, we are satisfied. We're satisfied when we think on our Savior. We're satisfied to think that in Him we have forgiveness of sins. Eternal life. We're satisfied as we think on heavenly things. As the Spirit illuminates more and more to our understanding. Pours ever more a greater sense of God's love into our hearts. We're satisfied as we think on our adoption as sons. We're satisfied as we think on heavenly things. As we feel a transcendence above mere ideas and mere doctrine. We're satisfied with a sense of communion. A bond. Fellowship with God Himself. It's the difference between talking about water and drinking water. You can explain to a very thirsty man how refreshing it would be right now. (laughs) Oh man, if we only had some water. I'm sure it's happened to you, it's happened to me where you leave home and you forget to bring something and you find you have no coins in your pocket and here you are somewhere, thirsty, but you can't get any water anywhere. And you're longing for it. And you know doctrinally. If I could only have a drink of water. It would be so satisfying. So refreshing. But then you actually go drink. This is what I mean. It's not that we move past doctrine. Or that doctrine doesn't matter. Or something like this. But it's not just about the ideas. It's about finding satisfaction in God. And those of us who have come to Christ in faith, 
we can say that we not only know the doctrine of satisfaction in Christ, of this never being thirsty again, of a spring of water being in us. Not only do we understand theoretically that this is what God does for His people, but having come in Christ to God, having had God come in Christ to us, we're in this new relationship, which is satisfying. Which grants us eternal life. We Christians have found not only eternal life, but satisfaction through dealings with Jesus that result in a new relationship to God. And if anyone here is not yet a believer in Christ Jesus, you may likewise find that not only eternal life, but also satisfaction is available to you by having dealings with Jesus that result in a new relationship to God. Put your faith in Him. In the rest of this narrative, Jesus will assert and demonstrate His identity as the Messiah or the Christ. He'll speak to the issue of true worship. He'll speak to the importance of evangelism. And Lord willing, those will be our themes over the next few weeks. But the context of this whole conversation is Jesus' offer to this woman of a new relationship with God resulting in satisfaction and ultimately eternal life. Everything that follows is subservient to this overall point. Or flows from it. The dominant theme not only in the first 14 or 15 verses of John chapter 4 then. But the first 42 verses of John chapter 4. This whole narrative. The dominant theme is that Jesus offers a new relationship to God. Which both satisfies in the here and now. And leads ultimately to eternal life. Do you know the gift of God? And who Jesus is. Will you ask him for a drink? Will you receive the living water. That he gives. Or have you already? And if so. Do you regularly remember. Revisiting and thinking on the glorious benefits. That are yours in Christ. A new relationship to God. The indwelling Holy Spirit. The eternal life that is yours in him. And the satisfaction that you may find in Him here and now. May we all, whether for the first time or simply anew and afresh, may we all find eternal life and satisfaction in the meantime through dealings with Jesus that result in a new relationship to God. May God be a spring in each and every one of us, welling up to eternal life causing us never to be thirsty again. This is what Christ offers in the gospel. Ask him for a drink of the living water that only he may give.